Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, looks like we are live, and welcome everybody to Standing for Truth. I want to thank you all for being here for today's program. It is a privilege to have Joseph Hubbard with us here again today. Joe, thanks so much for giving us your time for today's very important show, or for you tonight. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. It's been a little while. Um, We've suffered uh, a few health hiccups and so on and so forth since the last time I was on, but uh, it's really good to be back, and we've got a good program. Amen. Amen. We've been uh, praying for you. You are a fan favorite, uh, Brother Joe, so thank you for all you do and uh, all you do in defending the faith. So uh, thanks again. And uh, for the audience, today's uh, topic title specifically is why would a good God make bad things? We've got an epic epic presentation for everybody today. We've already got a great chat. Doki Doki SFT fan club. Thank you so much for the support and the super sticker. Uh, Quick uh, couple announcements before we get right into it. Or reminders, I should say, we've got a busy week. It is Monday. We've got a busy week of presentations and lectures. So today, obviously, we've got Indiana Joe Hubbard. Uh, tomorrow, we've got Sal Jardina. He'll, he'll be here at 8 o'clock EST for a presentation on evolution and why it doesn't work. And then the very next day, we've got Steph Harima here. He's going to be giving a response, uh, a lecture uh, pertaining to Dr. Kevin Hankey's uh, latest response to staff. So that's definitely going to be exciting. So that being said, uh, Joe, I'm going to hand it over to you for a brief introduction. And uh, I think we'll just get right into this. I'm yeah, really sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, regulars to this show, uh, people who've also followed creation research, uh, whether it be on Facebook or YouTube or through the website or whatever, will know that a few uh, months back now, and I can't quite believe myself when I say it's a few months back, uh, I had a little bit of a health scare, uh, which ended up on me essentially being unconscious for over an hour and being rushed into hospital and all the rest. Um, We still don't know what caused it. Uh, I've been semi-diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat, but as my doctor says that's more of an observation rather than a diagnosis right um so we're still sort of waiting covid has made a, a massive toll on the nhs and the health service over here so we're sort of waiting at least two years so we're now looking into private options and all the rest which uh, doesn't come cheap at all so we're still waiting on that uh but the good news is i myself am feeling a lot better uh i've been suffering with fatigue and all sorts of stuff leading up to that point and there's you know i have good days and bad days but overall pretty good days uh, most of the time. So we're praising the Lord for that. Uh, I've changed up my lifestyle and diet and things like that. So that certainly helped uh, a bit as well. So do thank you for all of your prayers and all of the support and everything as well. I do uh, really, really appreciate that. Uh, Yeah. So tonight's program is... um, why would a good God make bad things? And a disclaimer, I have to say, we're not going to get through everything, uh, mainly because there are a lot of bad things in the world today and we haven't got the time to cover them all tonight, right? Uh, But before we do that, and before I give you a few sort of picture updates uh, as to what I've been doing, a big part of tonight is going to centre around the topic of design. Um, Mostly, how would you recognise design and how would you recognize whether something has been designed for good or designed for bad? And more specifically, how would you recognize if a design has gone wrong? 
How would you recognize if a design which was originally designed for a good purpose is now being designed or used at least for a bad purpose? Uh, without getting uh, too political, uh, one example of this in our world today would be a van. Now, we've had several instances in the UK, uh, because guns are pretty hard to come by over here, most terrorists would... Uh, opt for a van as their weapon of choice. They would get into a van, drive along the streets of London and run people down. Now, the most popular van in the UK is the Ford Transit. Ford, of course, Henry Ford, the Model T and everything else. And when he was designing his cars, he, I'm pretty sure, only had good things in mind to, uh, for them to be used for, right? And cars have revolutionized our world. Cars have completely changed the way that we can transport ourselves and connect ourselves and everything else, right? Cars are a good design. However, in the hands of a wrong person, they're used in a bad way. They're not used for their original intention. So we're going to delve a little bit into design and a little bit into how would you recognize when a design has gone wrong. Now, I've got some designs here with me tonight. Um, hold this up to the camera. Let's see if we can get that in focus. Lovely. Uh, any ideas what it is? You can see this kind of shape. It's got a nice edge on it on there. Very, very sharp. Uh, it's been wonderfully shaped. This is actually a hand axe, or not technically a hand axe. It's a stone tool which was designed to be fitted into a, a stick so it could be used uh, like an axe. Now, how would we know that this is designed? Well, you know that this is designed for the same reason that you know this axe is designed. Uh, this, by the way, these are all in our museum collection. These are all real artifacts. This is a rather lovely, and it's got some beautiful decoration on it on this side as well. This is a Viking iron axe um, from Sweden. It's been dug up out of the peat bogs and sent over here. It's now in our museum collection. It's in beautiful condition for something that's uh, you know over a thousand years old. Absolutely wonderful. Now, what do these two have in common? Well, both of them have been designed and they both contain the same properties of design. What are we talking about when we're dealing with design? Well, you know whether something is designed if it contains properties that do not come from the source material. In other words, no matter how long you would leave a stone around, it would never produce a hand axe like this. Oh, it may produce a sharp edge which you could fashion uh, as an axe and use it to chop and hack, but to actually get it so beautifully detailed and shaped for a specific purpose. In fact, I was having a look because we don't actually, I'm in my office uh, at home at tonight because um, it's sort of uh, uh, quarter past 11 at night at the moment. So it's fairly late over here in the UK, but I was looking to see if I could have some of my Antullian hand axes because they actually are proper hand axes which are designed for your right or your left hand. They actually have been carved and specifically designed to be held in a particular hand. You see, no matter how long you leave this rolling around, an axe would never, a uh, stone rather, sorry, would never produce a hand axe like this. The hand axe has properties that do not come from the material that it's made of, i.e. the stone, therefore this is designed. Um, just the same as this Viking hand axe. Hey, it's got a lovely little uh, star on the back there. Um, iron, iron comes from iron ore in Sweden and in the UK, most of that comes from bog iron. And bog iron, just lumps of iron hanging around, no matter how long you would leave it, it would never turn itself into an axe like this. It contains properties. In particular, it actually contains decorative properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of, i.e. the iron. Therefore, this is a design. And I've got one last one. Those are both real artifacts facts, by the way. This is a, uh, a replica, but it's a very nicely done replica. Um, a proper little hand axe, or quite a larger hand axe, actually. Uh, it would be fitted in similar to this one. 
This is absolutely beautiful. It was actually made by a, a friend of mine, uh, Will Lord, who makes these for a living. He actually took the flint and he spent a very long time shaping it and carving it and chipping it until it's got a beautifully sharp edge. He set it into this wonderful U uh, handle, bound it round with uh, special string or special tight, uh, tightening rope made out of the strips of this is uh, deer skin. And he made a pine pitch out of charcoal, pine uh, uh, sap and uh, and a bit of honeycomb, honey wax as well. And it's set it in and it's rock solid. You could genuinely chop a tree down with this. And this is based off of the same technology that they used during the Stone Age. Um, absolutely beautiful hand axe. And you know what? Will Lord, and I also know his, uh, his dad, uh, John Lord, who has been doing this even longer than he has. And both of them would be the first to admit that actually the stuff that you find in the real archaeological record is so sophisticated, it's taken them 20, 30, 40 years of practice and training, and they're still not as good as the ones that you actually dig up in the archaeological record. And they also have technology like YouTube and media, and they can share Zoom and share information all around the planet as to how to make these and be, get better at making them, but they're still nowhere near as good as the real thing. You see, this has been designed. It contains properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of. Stones and wood and deer by themselves do not form a beautiful axe like this that could then go and chop a tree down. Um, this has been designed. So now we've got that little important section out of the way. Uh, let me give you a little bit of an update via the medium of photographs. Let's see if I can uh, share my screen here. Share screen share screen and as you do that joe i just want to let the audience know uh firstly thanks again for being here and we will be having an audience q a immediately after uh, joe's presentation here so please tag me with your questions uh tag me at standing for truth uh and, and joe yeah whenever you're ready we can uh share your screen yeah i think we should be just about good to go there we go does that look good to you yes yes looks Lovely great job let's put it up full screen if my computer wants to work. <laughs> there we go. Lovely. Well, there you can see me and John there. Um, John, of course, I think was on not too long back, and I'm sure he'll be on again. We've been keeping fairly busy, even though I'm in a in a semi-free uh, UK and he's in a very lockdown Australia. Uh, we've been keeping fairly busy. Um, and you can also see our websites there, but you, of course, know all of this. You can find out more about the work we're doing, in particular, our museum project, which I'll update you on in just a moment. Um, here's one of the things that we've been doing, and I know that... Uh, Donnie was sharing stuff and telling people about this, which we're very grateful for. Um, it, was, uh, it was March time, I think. It's, it's been getting on a little bit now. Uh, we've been doing this for a few months, even though we had a, a break in the middle because of my health. We've been doing a weekly broadcast, Creation Conversations. And I believe Sam, who's actually watching tonight, I believe, uh, he's a, a regular on our show as well. And he looks after all of this sort of uh, tech stuff and the background stuff. And he's been an absolutely marvelous help uh, to actually getting this program moving forward a little bit. Uh, we've done a three-part series, by the way, if you like the political stuff, we've done a three-part series on when should a Christian disobey the government, or specifically looking at what should it look like when a Christian needs to defy the government? What should it look like when a Christian uh, comes under persecution? Because there's lots of misconceptions around it. There's lots of ideas of all oh, Christians should be up in arms and defending themselves and their rights and so on and so forth. So there's an interesting uh, little program for you to go and watch. And um, 
this is also Sam's doing as well. We're also available as a podcast. Uh, now, I don't know too much about podcasts, but Sam does, and apparently they're very popular things. So you can now get creation conversations every single week on whichever uh, podcast service you like. There's Apple and Google and Spotify and a whole list of other ones that you can find. So you can find out more about these on our website and on our uh, Facebook and YouTube. So do go and check that out as well. We're also going to be introducing, by the way, uh, a second broadcast every week. So there'll be two broadcasts every week, a slightly shorter one, which will be more of a Bible study, uh, more of we're going to start actually uh, with the program Walking with Jesus Through Genesis, showing how Genesis actually ties up with the gospel and how you can't have one without the other. So that promises to be very exciting. Do stay tuned. And this is next week's program. Or sorry, no, we're already in this week aren't we? This is this week's program uh, coming up this Friday. Uh, that's Friday 9pm in the UK. So that's sort of about uh, 3 um, uh, three uh, p.m. USA Central Time, something like that, if the clocks haven't changed, because I can't quite remember when that is. But it's sort of mid-afternoon time, uh, early to mid-afternoon, wherever you are in the USA. Uh, Demons, Ghosts and Druids. It's our Halloween special. Where did Halloween come from? Because uh, you do realise it is actually a, a British festival, um, originally anyway. And we're going to have a little bit of a look into the history of it. We're going to have a little bit of a look into some of the more uh, darker spiritual side of things, like demons and ghosts. Where did that idea come from? Are they still active today? Uh, can you have such things as ghosts? What are we really dealing with from a biblical perspective? So a fascinating topic, and I've already spent quite a bit of time talking through it with uh, uh, John Mackay uh, and Dr. Diane Eager, who's also been on the show with uh, with Standing for Truth before. We've got a great program coming up, so do tune into that on Friday the 29th of October. Okay, a little update as well about our museums project, because that has come forward in leaps and bounds, even though we've hit a little bit of a snag in recent weeks. So those who do support us, please do keep us in your prayer. Support us where you can, uh, uh, both in prayer and uh, and physically or financially or donating fossils or whatever you want to do. Uh, do keep us in your prayers because we've got a little bit of a, a hiccup. But here's some of the uh, newest, most fabulous things that we've ended up in our museum collection. Um, here's an absolutely fantastic mummy mask. In fact, if you can still see uh, on this side of me, I've got a second one uh, just up behind me. Um, this, by the way, this is one of the older ones. This is from uh, the same kind of time as the right early kings of Israel. And you have lots of references to the Egyptians in the Bible. And it can it is artifacts like these that are really useful for correlating uh, the chronologies, the timings. How does this fit into scripture? Uh, does it really go back the several thousands of years as claimed? Or is there a different interpretation? So it's things like these that are really very useful. Uh, we've already mentioned King Nebuchadnezzar's brick on this channel before. Uh, we've done a little bit more research into it since then. Um, there's the translation, by the way, and it is referring to the king in the first person. And that's extremely important because it means that Nebuchadnezzar himself actually stamped this brick. Um, it's great providence, by the way. It comes from the Reverend Leonard Pearson, uh, who collected this from Arabia in the 1930s. It was on display in the British Museum for a while, and you really can't get much out of the British Museum anymore. So we're praising the Lord that we've been able to get hold of this from a private collection. Um, these wonderful seals, the seal of Hezekiah. 
Oh, yes. Um, it tells you in uh, two chronicles about King Sennacherib, the Assyrian king. And you can go to the British Museum and you see plaque after plaque after plaque of the Assyrian king Sennacherib boasting about how he was going to completely destroy all of Judah, the entire kingdom of Judah, and was going to bring it to its knees. And you know what? You can't find a single reference in Assyrian uh, archaeology or history that records how the invasion actually happened. And you know why you can't find a record, because the Assyrians didn't really win much. Uh, you can open up. They only managed to sack one city or take over one city. But you can open up and find that God struck down every single Assyrian captain. And so Sennacherib went home with his tail between his legs. But Hezekiah, being the wise king and the good king that he was, not only did he pray to God and ask for a miracle, and God certainly delivered, he also, being the wise king he was, made preparations for siege. The most famous one, perhaps, is... Um, the uh, Hezekiah's tunnel uh, that goes under the city of Jerusalem, bringing fresh water in, right? But it also says in scripture in two chronicles that he commissioned the making of jars to hold wine, to hold grain and to hold oil, as well as uh, bringing in cattle and making fortifications and provisions for uh, at least four major cities. Um, that's what these seals are from. They're the seal of Hezekiah. Some of them touched by Hezekiah himself, because you can tell the difference between the one that Hezekiah's uh, seal ring and uh, his sort of advisor seal rings. Uh, but you can tell you can tell the difference which one was touched. Some of these were touched stamped by Hezekiah himself. So yes, when you come and visit the Genesis Museum of Creation Research, you can touch a brick that Nebuchadnezzar has touched, you can touch a pot that Hezekiah has touched, and all of this is about bringing the Bible to life, um, actually showing people uh, the true story, the true history recorded in Scripture. Of course, the fossils, we know the fossils, we've done the flood many times on this program, great archaeology, great history, great field trips. So a really vital and important project, one that is very, very hands-on uh, in its core. We're going back to this place, by the way, uh, or at least the one on the uh, on the left-hand side there, which is down on the Isle of Wight. There I am excavating a dinosaur skull. Uh, we're going back down there in a few weeks' time, so stay tuned on Creation Researchers Media uh, pages because we're probably going to be uh, broadcasting a few live videos from there. Uh, that'll be uh, very, very exciting as well. And this is the point that we make, and this is sort of our introductory theme for this evening uh bible verse and i make no apologies about be being a bible verse because that's what we're all about over at creation research and that's standing for truth as well um philippians chapter 2 verse 5 let this mind be in you that is also in christ you see a big problem when we're dealing with the critics is that they don't have christ's mind now, of course, you say, well, that's not being, uh, you know, uh, you're not being ob objective here. Well, no, I'm not. But then neither are most people. In fact, neither are most scientists. Everybody has an agenda. Everybody has presuppositions. Everybody has starting points and pre-understandings that you bring to the table when you're doing research, uh, when you're assessing the facts most of what ends up being published is simply interpretation of the facts now if you're a christian and you're watching tonight we're dealing with the subject of why would a good god make bad things now of course to actually begin to grapple with the subject you first of all have to believe that there is a god you also have to believe that he's good otherwise the question doesn't make any sense right why would a good god make bad things so yes this program is aimed predominantly at christians yes this program is aimed predominantly at those wanting to 
sort of get to grips with Genesis and the world that we live in today. But it's important to make sure whether you're Christian or not, if you're looking at this subject, make sure you have Christ's mind. Make sure you have the perspective of God. Um, how do we know the perspective of God? Through written revelation, which is found in Scripture. Um, that's the only way that you can get God's perspective. Uh, and this is really what we're trying to show in all of our museum projects, in all of our work that we're doing, and all of the research that we're doing. It's helping people to see Christ's mind. It's helping people to have Christ's mind. By the way, uh, a lot of our programs, and like I say, there's no way we're going to get through all of this tonight. Uh, we've got masses of, uh, of resources on this, uh, both in our Australian shop, in our UK shop, and in our USA shop. Our UK shop, by the way, has the largest stock of DVDs uh, and programs, so it's great if you want to hand them out or don't want to go down the new modern form of streaming but we have limited supply so uh, we do ship worldwide if people want to get more resources there's some great programs on why would a good god make bad bugs uh the true history of worms and germs a sort of covid19 special pack uh if you want to find out more get these resources you can go to creationresearchstore.com that's our uk store but we ship worldwide and uh i've thought because uh you know, times have been uh, times have been hard all around the world, and because this is sort of our last DVD stock, and we're heading towards Christmas, we'd put up a little offer for anybody: twenty uh, percent off if you use the code SFT October, all capitals. SFT October, all capitals, um, and this runs from a week from broadcasting date. So uh, you've got a little bit of time if you want to get some great resources from Creation Research. Okay, our topic tonight. Uh, did a good God make bad things? Let's dive straight into it. And remember that disclaimer, which I made earlier, that we will not cover all things because uh, there are too many bad things in the world today to cover them all in one evening. We have done uh, programs on this. I think we've done a couple of programs on this uh, on Creation Conversations. So you can find out more there. There's plenty more. If you go to creationresearch.net, click on the Q&A, stick in bad things, sticking worms and germs and spiders and scorpions and whatever you want, uh, and there'll be bound to be some information on there and of course as donnie mentioned earlier we will be having a q a session later so do uh, bring up questions in that point as well now this program is really a mashup of two programs which i've done before one deadly bite and the poison in me uh, both of them were uh, created out of a question that had been asked several times but both of them were created for usa television uh, both to be about 20 minutes long uh, with david reeves and co um so i've kind of mashed them together with a whole load of other things that we're going to sort of bring together it should make sense as we work through uh, but remember as we're working through we need to make sure that we actually have christ's mind in us so let's dive into the first topic uh, one deadly bite there's a snake now i love snakes i worked as a zookeeper by the way for six years when i was uh, earning my first degree in geology uh, and natural sciences it wasn't the most cheapest thing on earth so i had to sort of work alongside it uh, i worked as a zookeeper and sort of rose through the ranks as it were um, and ended up getting more and more responsibilities and taking on more and more care and one of the biggest things that i loved was looking after the reptiles looking after the snakes and the lizards um you'll find that they feature quite a bit as we go forward but we're talking tonight about snakes in particular but venom in general 
Um, oh, by the way, we need to make sure we lay down some definitions and we'll get a more technical definition as we go. But what's the difference between venom and poison? Venom is injected and is bad. Poison is ingested and is bad. So the old uh, anecdote is that if it bites you and you die, it's venomous. If you eat it and you die, it's poisonous, right? But we'll come on to that a little bit as we go. Here's one of our snakes that I got to look after. Uh, this is a corn snake native to uh, to North America. Um, here's another beautiful little garter snake. Uh, absolutely gorgeous, stunning colors. I think they're absolutely fabulous. Although it does always amuse me that in the UK, where we really don't have to worry about snakes, we've only got three species. One of them is extremely rare, and only one of them is venomous, right? And it's not even that bad, uh, a venom bite, right? Uh, people in the UK are terrified of snakes. You go to Australia where you really do have a lot of reason to be scared of snakes and uh, most Australians don't bat an eyelid when you put up pictures of snakes. So hopefully we don't have anybody with a fear of snakes here tonight as we sort of move on forward. Um, here am I looking quite a lot younger to be honest with you <laughs> working with another one of the uh, our snakes you've got to design enclosures this is a, a big burmese python you've got to uh, you know have a reasonable amount of knowledge about these animals if you're going to look after them and design enclosures around them and actually uh, make sure that they're fit and healthy and active it was great to get up close and personal to these beasts because understanding how the animals work really does help you with the fossils, with the dead ones. So I had a great time working with these creatures. And here's one of your North American garter snakes. Um, can you see he's sticking his tongue out at you? Now, he's not being rude, uh, because most of you probably know that he is smelling the air. Oh, smelling the air is the layman's term for it. We'll come on to it in more detail in a minute. But you probably also know that snakes have a forked tongue. Now, I wonder how many of you know why a snake has a forked tongue. Now, I asked this question every single day, uh, twice a day at Snake Encounter as we were taking snakes out and showing them to the members of the public. I only ever got the correct answer once in six years of presenting, right? Um, most people just simply don't think about it. And I like to remind people two things. Number one, if you don't ask the right questions, you won't get the right answers. Uh, that's vitally important in this topic and this whole sort of, uh, you know, topic creation, evolution, Noah's flood versus millions of years, all of that. It's vitally important in general. But also, if you really do believe that God created the heavens and the earth as he said that he did, then everything will have a purpose. Everything will have a reason for being the way that it is, uh, even if it is a mutation. Even if it is a problem, you will be able to trace it back almost to the original source or the original design. Um, why do snakes have a forked tongue? Well, we'll get onto that in a moment. Let's have a look at what they actually use this for. There's your uh, simplified diagram. You see he's sticking his tongue out. He's got a forked tongue there and he waves it around. Now, when we say he smells with his tongue, what we're really talking about is well, he actually smells using the same thing we used to smell with, which is our brain, right? When we smell, the odor particles go up your nostrils to the back of your nostrils to olfactory cells, which then take the information about the odors into your brain and your brain interprets it, right? What does the snake do? The snake sticks his tongue out, waves it around, catches those odor particles on the brain, brings his tongue back in uh, to his mouth and sticks his tongue straight up into his brain, into this little part of the brain down the bottom you can see there called the Jacobson's organ. Uh, and he literally wipes those odor particles 
off onto his brain, into this special little part of the brain, into the Jacobson's organ. So he's not just sending information, he's actually putting direct from the source straight into the information processing part of his brain. Okay, why is this important? Well, what it means is that snakes do have a spectacular sense of smell. They actually build up a 3D, 3D picture of smells uh, in their surroundings. They can smell up to a month old smells. Right? In other words, if a rat or a mouse had walked across my desk here a month ago it were, and the, some of those odor particles were left, then a snake would be able to pick them up. Now, that's astonishing. That's way beyond our sense of smell, way beyond even animals that we usually associate with having a good sense of smell, like a dog, right? Way beyond that. And they actually build up a 3D visual picture of smells using their um, sensory systems. Uh, fork tongue? Ah, one fork is for one side of the brain, the other fork is for the other side of the brain. It's to help in building up that 3D picture. Fascinating stuff, amazing stuff, brilliantly designed stuff. Um, of course, we then need to move on to the eating side of things, because they will use their sense of smell in order to find food. Now, this is Whisper. Um, Whisper's the snake, by the way, not the rat. We didn't name our rats before we fed them to the snakes. Um, <laughs> even though you have to have a little bit of a dark sense of humor to be a zookeeper most of the time. Um, but you can see Whisper is consuming a rather sizable rat. Now, if you can see my fingers up here, just to give you perspective, right, um, Whisper's head was about that big. Okay, it was pretty small. Uh, however, the rat that she would consume would be about that big. Now, that's quite a lot bigger. Uh, scale it up even more to our larger snakes, like our Burmese and our boa constrictors, and their heads were about that big, yet they were consuming large rats or even uh, sometimes rabbits up to the size of sort of somewhere in between there. In other words, they're consuming something which is far, far larger than their mouth is in a normal closed position. It's something far larger than their head is in a normal closed position. And I loved asking people, OK, what is going on here? What can snakes do in order to actually fully ingest this creature, this food source? And the answer that you got every single time was, oh, they dislocate their jaws. Now, I don't know if that's something that you hear over in the USA and in Canada, or uh, I've been to uh, Australia, and they certainly uh, believe that over there, I think I've done this presentation in the USA, and I'm sure that was used over there. It's something we come across all the time here in the UK. Uh, but there's the actual fact. Snakes do not dislocate their jaws in the slightest, simply because they do not have jaws for which they can dislocate. Um, let's have a look at the diagram here. This is an actual, uh, uh, an actual ad a skull. What you can see, two things immediately. First of all, they have a little bone called a quadrant bone, which sits on the back of their jaw. Now, this is a bone which can actually uh, create an extra lever to fold out. They don't unhook their jaws. They don't dislocate their jaws. They simply can open their jaws very, very wide. The other thing which you can see, if you have a look at where the snake's chin would be, you'll see he doesn't have a chin. Now, if you get a snake and turn them upside down, you can see a little line there, and that line is actually a bit of skin which folds up into their uh, mouth. So when they open their jaws really wide, it can actually fold back out and stretch open really wide. In other words, it's more of a, this kind of a motion 
rather than dislocating their jaws or an up and down motion like we have. It's a great design. It means that you can swallow great amounts of things. Now, snakes need this ability because they can't chew, even though they have teeth, and even though sometimes snakes have teeth that run all the way down their, uh, their, their throat, they don't have the ability to chew. So they have to have a which means they can actually swallow something whole. And they can do it pretty well. Um, they can do it really well. They can do it really, really well. This is one of Australia's big uh, rock pythons consuming a small wallaby. Ah, um, this is a fairly decent-sized meal. Of course, you do have to ask yourself, if you were going to shove that amount of food down your throat, um, would you be able to breathe? No, you wouldn't. Not even through your nostrils. Um, okay, and the snake's you know, respiratory system just like ours is wired up pretty much the same. Uh, you know, the nostril and the uh, and the mouth is all connected through the same pipe. So you've got yourself a little bit of a problem there. It can take over an hour sometimes. It can take half a day, depending on the size of the snake and the size of the male, to actually consume this. How is he breathing? Well, again, clever little design. You can see he's got a little tube down there. Uh, you can see it a little bit clearer in this little corn snake, but the bigger snakes, they all have them. This little tube is a bypass system. It means that it can actually stick it out the side of its mouth while it's consuming its food. And the tube goes over the top of its head so it doesn't get crushed. It runs down the back of his spine and into his lungs. So when he is consuming his food and his entire uh, you know, passage is blocked, he's got a little bypass tube which he can stick out the side and carry on breathing. Now, you do realize that all of these have to be in place in order to actually get a working snake. Uh, and it does lead to the question, how did these incredibly complex organisms evolve perfectly at the correct time? And the point is simple, right? If you have a snake, but he doesn't have a good sense of smell, he'll never find his food. If he has a good sense of smell and he can find his food, but he uh, doesn't have the ability to catch or consume his food because his jaws don't open wide, then he can find the food, but he'll still die. If he can have the sense of smell to find the food and he can open his jaws, but he doesn't have this tube, then he can find the food, he can start to consume the food, and then he'll die. All, right? All of these have to be in place. And I haven't even started talking about the fact that if you stuffed yourself with that amount of food, you'd explode, right? Uh, a snake has to have a body designed to be able to cope with large amounts of food. Um, it all needs to be in place at the correct time at the same time and it all has to work together in harmony otherwise you don't get a living snake for very long the point is simple if you want to get a working snake it's got nothing to do with time but everything to do with the process get the process right it happens very quickly and you end up with a working snake um, get the wrong process, throw lots of time at it, you'll never get all the components to come together no matter how many millions of years you actually throw at it um, and we dealt with this question earlier. How would you recognize a design if you actually saw one? Remember our definition of a design, and we'll come more onto it later. A design, if something has properties that do not come from the materials that it is made of, then it has been designed. And we'll deal more with this and explore a little bit as we go forward. Let's get on to the venomy stuff, though. Uh, one deadly bite, because yes, it is true, in today's world, majority of snakes have a completely carnivorous diet. They're meat eaters. Uh, I say mostly because you can find many records of snakes eating plants, uh, including things like grapes and using their same uh, 
specially designed jaws to actually consume large pieces of fruit. Uh, the document's there online. You can look it up. Um, but in today's world, some snakes can be quite scary. I don't think they're all scary, but I certainly wouldn't want to come across this fellow uh, when it got out of the wrong side of the bed in the morning. This, of course, is a Western diamond battle back rattlesnake. You've got them over in the USA. Some of these snakes, uh, I mean, Australia has more venomous snakes than non-venomous snakes. That's a pretty serious quantity of rather deadly creatures, right? Um, there he is with his shaky tail warning you to stay away. And of course, if you don't stay away, he can inject you with his deadly venom. Uh, toxins, an extremely complex mixture of toxins and enzymes, which can cause great amounts of damage to you. It's a pretty dangerous creature. Huh. Why would a good god make something like this? Well, to really get to the bottom of the issue, you need to ask yourself some questions. You need to ask some questions like, why would God create venom in the first place? Could venom be the result of the fall? Uh, the fall of mankind, uh, we're talking about a creation that is made very good. Man messes up. The woman was deceived. Man willingly chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, the earth was cursed. Could venom which in today's world is pretty bad, be a result of the fall of mankind? Could venom have had a different use in the beginning? That's an important question. Could venom have got worse after the curse? So maybe it didn't do damage before, now it does. Um, and of course, another important question is, are there any vegetarian animals that are also venomous? Because if there were, it would give you a clue as to what venom's true use is. Okay, now there's been lots of different creationist ideas about venom over the years. Um, several mainstream creationist organizations, you can go onto their websites and Google stuff, right? And you can find a whole host of ideas. Most of them, and I don't say this lightly, most of them are wrong. Uh, and I'll explain why. Here's some ideas, uh, and you can find these all over the internet, right? On creationist sites. Um, God equipped snakes with venom in order to survive in a fallen world. The premise of this is that venom is obviously, you know, it's a bad thing. And so God equipped snakes with venom so that in order, uh, you know, foreknowing in his great and infinite knowledge, knowing that the earth would fall, knowing that there would be hard times, knowing that it would be hard to survive and there'd be deserts and things like that. He equipped them with venom in order to be able to survive in a fallen world. Uh, other ideas is that venom was created after the fall. It was a result of the fall, just like thorns and thistles came onto the planet. And we're going to talk about that in a moment as well. Uh, the idea is that venom was created after the fall as part of this curse. Um, another idea is that venom just arose naturally after the fall. Now, okay, again, I really don't see this because venom is an incredibly complex uh, mixture of uh, enzymes and uh, and proteins and toxins all together. It does a spectacular job. How what it does, right? Uh, it doesn't. It's not really something that could just come together by itself. Um, of course, the other idea is that God actually designed snakes to kill, but He physically limited them before the world was cursed. He stopped them from biting humans and animals before the world was cursed, even though they were in their purest form designed to kill. Now, the problem with every single one of these ideas is simply this. Um, it comes from a secular perspective. Here's the problem. Sir David Attenborough, Life in Cold Blood. Great program. Stunning visuals. I mean, spectacular uh, photography, right? Um, but here's what he had to say about snakes. Snakes are the ultimate killing machines. 
You see, the problem with all of these creationist ideas about Venom is they all hinge on the idea that Venom is designed to kill. They all hinge on the idea that snakes are designed to kill. They all hinge on the idea that snakes are the ultimate killing machines. But remember the Bible verse we started with, let this mind be in you that is also in Christ. Make sure that you get a biblical perspective. So let's dive in and see what scripture actually says. I mean, this is evolution. Um, this is what Richard Dawkins, David Attenborough, the BBC all promote and believe in. In the beginning, there was nothing. Uh, some claim that there was something or infinite universes, or you can go into the whole form of cosmology. But regardless of what sort of start you believe, um, a hydrogen all by itself, given enough time, turns into presidents and prime ministers. That's the premise of evolution. Molecules all by themselves come together to form microbes, which go on to form monsters like the dinosaurs and uh, ape-like creatures, which go on to form mankind and beyond. A continuation of evolution. Um, that's the basis, that's the philosophy, that's the background, that's the worldview that produces the thought that snakes are the ultimate killing machines. Um, the solution you need to get a biblical perspective. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. In the beginning, God created. God created everything to perfection. There was no sin, there was no death, there was no disease. And then this happened, the fall of mankind. Eve was deceived. Adam willfully chose to eat of the knowledge of uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result, as Scripture tells us, by one man Adam, sin entered the world, and then death through sin. The world was no longer a good place. The world had changed from good to bad, and death had entered the world as well. And also things like these. Oh, this is from Jurassic Ark. John's spoken about Jurassic Ark many times before. Wonderful bromeliad plants. And can you see the spiky thorns on the side? And all of the prickly bits? Huh. I mean, we have loads of these examples at Jurassic Ark, and we're trying to develop a botanical garden over here in the UK as well, although it's a little bit harder than in northern Australia, where it's nice and tropical, right? Um, spiky things on the sides. Nasty things. Hey, you wouldn't want to you know, accidentally sit down on that, would you? Um, spiky, nasty, horrible, not good at all. Things that will hurt you, things that are painful if you grab hold of them. Uh, thorns and thistles. Oh, by the way, um, all thorns and thistles are the result, all spiky things on plants are the result of mutations. Um, in this case, well, you can see part of the mutation problem there. Part of this plant is not doing its job. Part of its plant, this plant is not actually producing chlorophyll, uh, producing you know sugars from the sun because it doesn't have any chlorophyll. It's just white. But you notice the little spiky things? They're quite interesting because what you have is a mutation that means that the plant has shrunk in this case anyway. And as a result of that, the little tubes, which are made out of silica, which is glass, get left behind because the plant has shrunk and the tubes get left behind and the sharp little bits of glass stick out the side and form these thorns. These are the true thorns in the technical form um, and other thorns, which are the, the failed sort of stem 
or, or branches as the branches begin to grow out and the shoots grow out and they fail and they end up being hard and spiky. Those are the true thorns. The prickles, like on the roses, uh, are a mutation which has caused a sharp thing to stick out of the side of the plant, actually produce a mutated part of the plant. But they're all the result of degeneration. They're all the result of mutation. They're all the result of devolution. Now, here we are on a field trip uh, not too long back, just a, a few weeks back. Uh, we took them to the uh, the Peak District, uh, which is quite a famous location. Uh, we've got lots of famous geology here in the UK. And this was probably one up there with one of the most famous locations with um, uh, Blue John Mine and the semi-precious crystals and everything. Uh, and we took a decent sized group of people out on a field trip because we love taking people out to actually show them the evidence for themselves. Um, what did we find? Lots of wonderful limestone for sure. Oh, but I've already dealt with limestone on this program before. Let's stick to this topic of why would a good God make bad things? Here we are in Castleton, UK. You can see me pointing up to some rocks there. These rocks are big thick bands of limestone and in between them is shale. And the shale stinks like the back of a petrol uh, truck or a diesel truck. Why? Because there's oil in these rocks. Lots and lots of organic material. Lots and lots of altered organic material. Whether it has been altered into oil, whether it has been altered into carbonized plant remains, or whether it's been altered fully carbonized into coal. Either way, lots of organic material squished up in this. And I said, hey, you can find fossils in this. Go have a bit of a dig around, see what you can find. Um, and as I was digging around, I came across this one here. Now, it's quite hard to see because when you first split a rock open, uh, you get the plant in pretty much true form, but it oxidizes and it takes just a few minutes to oxidize and you end up with a very, very clear example of what you're looking at. Um, can you see the little spiky things out the side there just starting to show through? Oh, as it begins to oxidize, you can actually see it even more clearly there. Um, as it begins to go a little bit white, as the altered material begins to react with the oxygen and shows it its true form. There it is there, even clearer, uh, not too much longer, and you get very, very clear fossil thorns. I mean, you can't get much clearer than that. This is just under a little filter to help the bits show up, but you can trace all of the outlines, a beautiful set of fossil thorns. Now, we've found these all over the planet, and I'm sure we've dealt with thorns at some point um, on Standing for Truth. If not, we need to do a whole program on them because they're absolutely fascinating. But these, however, are our most recent finds. Wonderful fossil thorns from the Carboniferous. These, by the way, are Neuopterus, which is a type of seed fern, and they produce these failed branches, which are thorns. Okay, these rocks are supposed to be 304 million years old, according to the textbooks. Um, well, let's have a look somewhere else. This is in Northumberland, also in the UK, and you can see next to me a rather spectacular polystrate tree. Oh, we are, uh, I'm speaking um, for a big Answers in Genesis conference in a about a week's time, actually. Uh, it's their biggest one of the year. I encourage you to go and sign up. It's very, very cheap. You've got a whole list of fantastic speakers, including myself. Uh, and we're doing a great program uh, by creation research on polystrate trees, the evidence for a global flood. Um, there 
tree in situ you can see me sort of starting to dig it out a little bit it's on a wild windy northumberland beach uh, back in february and these rocks are supposed to be 318 million years old oh they're carboniferous just like the ones up in castleton and guess what we found in there fossil thorns as well beautiful fossil thorns again neuropterus um the seed fern thorns mutated thorns in these rocks um northumberland supposedly 318 million years old let this mind be in you that is also in christ let's get a biblical perspective um these are not 318 million years old according to scripture what am i talking about then god said to adam because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which i commanded you saying you shall not eat of it the ground is cursed for your sake in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the herb of the field you see if you're a christian here tonight this book which is in its truest form a record of god's legal dealings with mankind is also a history of thorns it's a history of people it's a history of the planet it's a history of thorns and it's a record of god's legal dealings with mankind and you can find out the salvation plan i mean you know it's a legal record because you have the old and the new what testaments as in your last will and testament ah oh, but that's a whole different bible study but the point is simple um scripture gives you a full history of thorns and thistles and they are the result of the curse the curse of what the curse brought on by man's sin in other words these thorns uh, all thorns all thistles all things like this came about after man sinned and therefore after man was on the planet so according to scripture these are less than 10,000 years old not 318 million years old in the slightest and not 304 million years old for the cases in the carboniferous now that puts me at odds with a lot of secular geology um and i am happy to admit that but let's actually look at some of the evidence and we've dealt with evidence so many times with noah's flood and everything else so we don't have time to deal with that tonight we're just looking at why would a good god make bad things but we find these all over the planet this is one some of the first fossil thorns we found back in canada i mean you can't get much clearer than that can you absolutely beautiful stunning fossil thorns there's the fossil on the right there's the present day plant over there uh, on the left beautiful fossil thorns again the age there's the coal that's where they're coming out of these fossil thorns are supposed to be again around 300 million years old these are all the carboniferous or if you're in the usa you call it the pennsylvanian and the mississippian right uh, i've collected fossil thorns from tennessee i've collected them from australia in newcastle in australia and i've collected them from at least three different locations here in the uk and john's collected them from canada and they're all over the world in the same rock layers that are again found all over the world test when did this rock containing fossil thorns form this rock formed after adam sinned according to scripture because it contains thorns and thorns only came about after adam sinned and after mankind was on the planet um, carboniferous nova scotia in canada is therefore less than six thousand years old there's the coal there's the thorns they're containing thorns according to scripture these happened after adam sinned um 
And as I remind you, uh, well, what I said earlier about the actual origin of thorns, we know the scientific origin of thorns, they all are formed from mutations. They're all formed from devolution, from a downward spiral, problems and mistakes in the genome, which end up producing spiky failed leaf stems like these ones, uh, shrunken leaf stems, uh, shrunken leaves rather, with the silica protruding out in the case of these bromeliads, you can see the pineapple there in the middle, um, all the mutated forms which spring out of the side of our roses. Ah, interesting. Make sure you have Christ's mind in when we're dealing with this subject. So when we're dealing with venom, um, let me introduce you to Clarice. Uh, Clarice was a wonderful green iguana. She was a red green iguana, um, which is a, a specific breed of green iguana, and she was absolutely wonderful. Now, we got both her and her brother, Hannibal. I didn't name them, uh, by the way, um, but they were actually given the duo name because of Hannibal's attitude. Um, Hannibal, the uh, red green iguana, was a nasty, vicious iguana. And to be honest with you, I don't really blame him. He'd had his tail pulled off uh, a little while earlier. Um, so, yeah. He wasn't a very happy iguana. He hadn't been looked after very well. They came to us covered in sores and covered in open bleeding bits. We had to do lots and lots of work on them to try and get them looking healthy and good again. Uh, and Clarice cheered up and she'd happily wander around and sit on your head. Uh, Hannibal never really quite got on with that. And so what I'm going to do is tell you a little story. Now, Hannibal, being a zoo, we had to go in every so often and do a health check. Now, Hannibal, Hannibal on one occasion, had a big bit of, uh, of skin stuck in his eye, right? So we had to pick him up, hold him, handed him to my colleague, took my glove off so I could get a better grip, came over the top, grabbed hold of the skin, and pulled it out of his eye, at which point he whipped around and grabbed hold of my hand. Now, iguanas have serrated, backward-pointing, razor-sharp teeth. It's sunk down into my flesh, no problem. And if I'd have tried to pull it out, it would have easily sliced through my skin and sliced through my tendons and sliced through my flesh. These are extremely sharp teeth. Now, we tried several things and eventually had to prise it open and kind of wedge my hand out. But it makes a very good point. By the way, most pain that I've ever been in, uh, especially when they started squirting stuff in to try and get him to let go and didn't work. Right. Um, but it, it was it was extremely painful. This thing sunk down through my flesh. No problem in the slightest. And then it began to get a bit puffy and a bit purpley in the coming days. And that's when I found out that actually these green iguanas hold a secret. They're the same kind of secret that these bearded dragons have. Oh, this is Methuselah, our baby bearded dragon. He's a wonderful little guy. And uh, he, well, he has the same thing that green iguanas do. If they bite you, they can go a little bit puffy as well. What's going on here? Well, they have razor-sharp teeth too. Um, again, they can slice their food. However, both green iguanas and bearded dragons have pretty much the same diet. Green iguana, uh, bearded dragons are slightly different. Um, but what's going on with these? Well, there's their diet here. Let's see if this will work. I'm not entirely sure whether it whether it will. Whoops, there we are. This one will work. Here we go. Um, there's uh, Hannibal on the right-hand side. There's Boise, our big friendly iguana, on the uh, on the left-hand side. And you can see what they're eating. They're having a good old munch at veggies. Iguanas are 100% vegetarian. Uh, bearded dragons are sort of 80% 
vegetarian uh, and the, the 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 meat that they do eat is mostly small little bugs and grubs and cockroaches and things like that right mm. what was the purpley puffy stuff well fairly recently and by fairly recently i mean in the last few years this is a relatively recent discovery we've now found that both green iguanas and bearded dragons and a whole host of other reptiles all are venomous they actually contain mild forms of rattlesnake venom and it's potent enough it's not bad enough to do much harm to humans but it's potent enough to kill a small mammal someone like you know a guinea pig or a rat or something um yeah it's pretty serious stuff okay why does a 100 percent vegetarian animal uh need venom well here's a little clue um let's see if we can skip over here's another video for you to watch uh you can see um this is Hannibal here, and you can see he's got a nice bit of cabbage leaf. Now, have a look at his behavior as he actually starts eating this. He gets hold of a great big good old chunk of it, and you can start to see him doing it any moment now. A big shake of the head, a shake and a rip. Now, you can actually see this behavior in most meat eaters. Um, they do it to sh shave off great, tear off great big chunks of meat. You see it particularly in crocodiles, right, or in Komodo dragons and the like. It's the same behavior. Now, it turns out you actually need to ask yourself the question, what is venom used for? What is it actually physically doing? Why does it actually physically kill you? And the answer is quite simple. When you are injected with venom, there's two forms of venom. There's a hematoxin and there's a neurotoxin. Uh, both of them uh, do essentially the same thing. They just attack different parts of the body. Hematoxin attacks your blood begins to digest it coagulates it and so it stops flowing and you die hematoxin begins to digest your nervous system and you end up freezing it's the one that can either kill you extremely quickly or it's the one that can actually paralyze you uh, and you know you're you're not actually dead but you're slowly decaying because you're completely paralyzed and you can't do anything right um however you notice the key word there digest they actually attack you by digesting you and it turns out that venom is just as good at digesting plants as it is at digesting meat and now you can start to see this in completely uh you know vegetarian animals that also have venom what did snakes eat in a very good world well there was no death there was no sin there was no bloodshed so <clears throat> they would have eaten plants but what do snakes have they have sharp teeth venom and heat sensors uh, all of these things in today's world are viewed as things that help them eat meat. But what's going on with the big picture? What's going on with venom and the way that venom works and how we can relate that to a good world? And why would a good uh, God make such a design? Well, venom and poison. There's a... Um, viper with his heat sensing pit a lot of these big creatures have it the the, the pit vipers have it uh the big snakes like the burmese and the pythons and so on and so forth have it right uh they have the heat sensing pits which there's no doubt about it they help them to find live prey because all living things give off heat right um however a recent report uh, and this this report is from a little while back but there's been a lot more recent research into this which actually says that well have a look at this knowing when to slither under ground and beat the heat is key survival skill for these cold-blooded creatures and the researchers say that thermoregulation not hunting may be why the pits evolved in other words there's a much bigger overarching use in fact these researchers are arguing it is the primary use of these pits is not to help them hunt but actually to tell them when it's cold when it's warm when they need shade when they need to get out of the way and when they need to warm themselves up Again, it's a good design to help the snake. Uh, sharp teeth and venom. 
while teeth grip and pierce food. And remember our point from the green iguanas, right? Sharp serrated backward pointing teeth that are 100% vegetarian. All teeth shape tells you is how an animal eats, not what an animal eats. If it's serrated and backward pointing, it slices its food. If it's cone shaped, it stabs its food. And if it's flat, it grinds its food. It tells you everything about how an animal eats, not what an animal eats. And snake's teeth can be used to inject venom into the food. Now, venom is an extremely complex mixture of protein and enzymes, which help break down food, help digest food, help pre-digest food, uh, at least break up food as the snake is swallowing it down, whether it's plants or whether it is meat. Uh, it is particularly plants in the case of these vegetarian animals, which only eat plants, yet have this venom. Why do it this way? Remember our point from earlier, um, snakes don't chew. They can't mix saliva and mush it up like we do with our jaws that go up and down. They have to swallow it whole, so they need something in addition to help them with the digestion. It turns out that venom does this very, very well. But as the world starts to change, you now need to put on God's glasses and take Darwin's glasses off. Because as the world changes, here's the real history of weather according to scripture. In the beginning, everything was very good. Adam and Eve were walking around naked. They weren't freezing to death and they weren't getting sunburnt either. It was an ideal world to live in. Skip forward to Noah, you have the first record of rain. You also get reference to the end of the flood when God promises Noah that for as long as the earth remains, there shall be springtime, uh, sorry, summer and winter. There will be cold and heat. There'll be springtime and there'll be harvest. First reference to climate change. Skip forward to the book of Job and you have reference to ice, snow and hail and a potential reference to the ice age. You then get drought by the time of Abram and you get erratic climates. I mean, the promised land went from drought to land of flowing with milk and honey to drought again several times throughout its course of history, right? Erratic climates that change all the time. And because you're not in an ideal world anymore, creatures are forced to adapt. Creatures are forced to use their design in a way that benefits them. As a world begins to degrade and there's not much veg, because bear in mind, right, it wasn't just the animals that were cursed. It was the plants as well. So not only has the animal ability to eat gone downhill, but so have the plants gone downhill. No longer can plants sustain all creatures. When there's not as much veg, you end up catching prey as the food chain breaks down. You bite your enemies. And it's important to recognize that most snakes can choose when to inject. At least 25 to 20, uh, 25 to 50 percent of bites are known as dry bites. Oh, and as an additional point, snakes can also tell the difference between male and female um, human beings and also adult and child and most of their dry bites are to women and children interesting little point to consider there um however if you're wearing darwin's glasses you'll define evolution as change you'll then call all change evolution next you'll accept change in snake die and behavior as proof of evolution and therefore dismiss creation as completely unthinkable but the point that we like to make over and over again is that there are many theories that disagree with everything in the Bible, but the facts actually don't. Hmm. One deadly bite. Now, this is one good design gone wrong. This is a good design being used in a bad way. This is a good design designed to help snakes, to help snakes continue to digest their food that they're consuming, which is now being used in a bad way. I mean, think about it for a moment, right? Uh, where are some of the most deadliest snakes in the world today? 
they are all concentrated around the hardest places to live right the australian outback has tiger snakes it's nasty right rattlesnakes stereotypically live in the canyons and the deserts and around the areas where it's hard to live right no longer does it have much vegetation that could support such a creature i mean they can't eat grass because in order to consume grass you need to have a four-chambered stomach which is able to do all the digestion and regurgitation and chewing again and so on and so forth right um if you are find yourself as a snake in a place where you cannot survive on plants, you're going to use your very good design in a bad way in order to survive. And that's why you end up with a concentration of snakes over a number of years. The most deadliest ones are around the hardest places to live, generally speaking. Huh. This is a good design that has gone wrong, or at least a good design being used in a bad way. There's the real deadly bite. It's the one when Adam chose to actually take a bite of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, that's the reason why we're scared of snakes today. That's the reason why snakes use their good design in a bad way today. That's the ultimate um, reason behind why would a good God make bad things. The answer is he didn't. Originally, everything was very good, and you can find a good purpose in everything that God has created, but that does not stop them from being used in a very bad way. Remember our story about the van earlier? Henry Ford created vans for good. Now they're used for bad. They're used to help burglars steal things. They're used by terrorists to run down people. Ah, a good design being used in a bad way. But is that Henry Ford's fault? Of course it isn't. Hmm. A reminder before we move on to part two, uh, the poison in me of this offer which we're doing, Creation Research Store. We've got a whole set, a whole program uh, around good God, bad things, good God, bad bugs, real history of worms and germs, stuff like that. Our brand new, well, it's actually not brand new anymore, relatively new, uh, new this year anyway, um, documentary Fire and Ice Climate. That's all on there. We ship worldwide from our UK store and you can get 20% off our UK store, everything in our UK store, if you use the code SFT. October or capital so a reminder for you there and by the way we've got an interesting little project in the works and I'll just give you a little sneak peek on it um as most of you probably know we have COP26 happening the big climate summit is happening in Glasgow in a couple of weeks time protests are going absolutely mad at the moment insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion are taking over the M25 which is our sort of biggest motorway in the country right uh, it goes around London they're blocking it all off um, they're blocking off streets and parts of uh, uh, um, the centre of London as well they're even coming to our local town right they're spreading all over the place we're working on a little project where we we actually go and interview some of these people and see why they're actually doing this and see how much of the science and the history history being the key point there that they actually know and um, so it's a little bit of a look into the political side of the climate change debate rather than just the scientific side because and historical side um because we've actually dealt with that in four programs so that promises to be a very unique um uh, little look into the political side of climate change so stay tuned with creation research that should be coming fairly soon here's your real uh, question whether it's climate change or snakes or good designs gone wrong or bad things or everything the question is who is your authority is it god's unchanging word or is it man's continu continually evolving theories if you're a christian here tonight my challenge to you would be make sure that it is god's unchanging word the poison in me let's have a look at a different type of uh, problem 
Okay, a who am I quiz. Who am I? My mouth is filled with razor-sharp serrated teeth. I use my sharp teeth for pulping broccoli and cabbage and any other greens I can steal from the green turtle. My owners say that they are having to hide pieces of fish inside celery sticks, hollowed out cucumbers and between the leaves of lettuce to get me to eat them. But if they don't hide it well, I ignore their meat and wait for the strictly vegetarian stuff. Yum. Oh, by the way, this is all broadcast in UK newspapers. Um, what is this creature? It is Florence, the vegetarian tropical nurse shark at the National Sea Life Centre, Birmingham, UK, a few years back, published in the Daily Mail, one of our biggest newspapers. Okay, interesting. Um, a vegetarian shark. But they're not that surprising if you have a biblical perspective. In the beginning, a reminder, everything was very good. Everything was perfect. God made the world very good, and he declared it so at the end. And good meant that all creatures were vegetarian. You can read it in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 29 and 30. God only gives creatures permission to eat plants, nothing else. All creatures were originally vegetarian, and you and I view good as a moral word, and of course it is that, but it's so much more than that. Good meant that all creatures were vegetarian. Good meant there was no disease, no suffering, no death. The real fact is that there are many theories and opinions that disagree with everything in the Bible, but the facts never actually do. And you can see example after example after example of this. What is this? It's a fossil of a shark. Um, hey, they're reproducing after their kind, also like God told them to. No change there at all. Shark fossils are clearly shark fossils, and they're still alive today. They've been doing exactly what God told them to do, reproducing after their own kind. Meet an original kelp cruncher, the tropical nurse shark, which only eats vegetarian food. Hmm. Our theme verse for this evening, uh, another one, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, destroying arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God and make every thought captive to Christ. Um, we need to actually be able as Christians to not only defend our faith, but show how foolish the arguments against God, how foolish the arguments against uh, Scripture actually are. <clears throat> okay, but if a God made a good world, why are some creatures poisonous then? I mean, we've dealt with the venom side of things, but what about the poisonous side of things? Things like poison dart frogs, for instance. Um, remember our definition? Venomous means that it injects toxin. If it bites you and you die, it's venomous. Poisonous means it contains toxins. If you bite it and you die, then it is poisonous. Uh, venomous creatures are some examples. Snakes, bees, wasps, spiders, patipus, so on and so forth. Poisonous are like toads, uh, poison frogs, beetles, salamanders, some fungus, and so on and so forth. Let's deal with the frogs. Here's some beautiful poison arrow frogs, absolutely delightful. And I teased a little while back how, uh, in one of our creation conversations, sort of promoting this program, how I'd be happy to touch a poison arrow frog and actually lick my finger. Only, by the way, if I'd actually been looking after it. Uh, I would never, ever dare do that with one straight from the wild. Hmm, interesting. What am I talking about? Uh, what can this clue be to our answer as to why would a good God uh, create a creature that's poisonous? Well, you need to look a little bit deeper into poison dart frogs, and we're hoping to get some of our own specimens, our own life specimens, in a sort of a zoo setup in our museum project at some point. Um, 
the question is really this how do poison frogs actually get their poison because they certainly don't make it themselves uh, the answer the frogs eat ants and millipedes the ants and millipedes contain poison um, including things like formic acid the frogs will then excrete this poison through the skin because their body is able to deal with the poisons they excrete it through their skin it's almost like sweat pores that pour out the liquid right uh, they need to be kept wet and as a result their skin becomes extremely toxic they contain toxins and if you get your dart and you rub it uh, wipe it a couple of times down the back and pop it into your blow dart and pff, you can kill some pretty serious creatures with it you can certainly kill a human being pretty deadly stuff question would these frogs be poisonous in the very good world where all animals ate plants no they wouldn't because they'd never be eating the uh the you know the the things which actually make them poisonous in the first place and you can actually add that on to a second point uh would any creature actually uh be poisoned by a poison dart frog even if it was poisonous no, because it wouldn't be eating them in the first place. Remember, you need to get a biblical perspective, a biblical picture. But if you look at frogs with Darwin's glasses, you start off by defining evolution as change. You then accept all change in frogs as proof of evolution and therefore dismiss the creation of frogs as completely unthinkable. Um, you can find all this reference and information, by the way. It's easily obtainable stuff and it pays to do a little bit of research into uh, these creatures and into the background in some of these things to try and get a biblical perspective but make sure that you actually stand firm on the word of god from the very beginning our point that we've made several times there are many theories that disagree with everything in the bible but the facts really don't again a reminder of our biblical perspective in the beginning god created everything very good it was created to perfection ten times god says that he created after its own kind we see this all throughout the fossil record matched up to the present day <coughs> excuse me and they were all vegetarian of course skip forward to genesis chapter 3 you find that man sinned, uh, sin and death entered the world. No longer were things very good. They could be used for a bad purpose. The world had changed from good to bad, and it wasn't God's fault. It was our fault, mankind's fault. Skip forward and you get to Noah's flood, the first major climate change, and the world had changed from good to bad to worse. This, by the way, is degeneration or devolution. It is completely the opposite of what evolution is supposed to be and stand for. So don't blame God in the slightest. It's our fault. There are many theories that disagree with everything in the Bible, but the facts really don't. And we can look forward to that promise in Isaiah chapter 11, where it says that the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the little child shall lead them, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den as it was in the beginning and you know what not a single part in any section of the scripture including revelation does it talk about the angels going around filing the lion and the wolf's teeth down now they'll have sharp teeth just like we have today the difference is they will be used for their original purpose their original good purpose and not the bad uh, the bad way of using them that they have now um they will be using a good design in a good way not a good design in a bad way they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. The real history of change. In the beginning, God created the world very good. 
all creatures began as vegetarian. There was no lack of provision. There was no struggle to survive. There was no disease or death, no scavengers or carnivores, no parasites. Ah, then man sinned. God cursed the ground. Death entered the world. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Thorns, thistles, weeds, natural selection actually starts, and the world changed from good to bad. Then death entered the world. Um, no longer was it very good. Death is now a fact of life, but it's not a biological necess necessity. It never was in the beginning, but it is now a fact of life and something that we all have to come to terms with. Skip forward to Noah's flood. You get corruption and violence. The earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And the Bible says that God grieved. Unnatural selection against weaker ones increases. Ah, scavengers. By Noah's time, some animals were unclean. Because God told Noah to take two of every kind of animal on the ark, but seven of every clean animal, indicating that the rest were unclean. Um, clean, and, uh, clean, clean and unclean animals uh, is based predominantly on what they eat. If you're a meat eater or you're a scavenger, then you're no longer clean. Uh, and most of the diseases in creatures today that you can get from creatures anyway, the majority of them come from the unclean animals. God knows what he's talking about. God sent a worldwide judgment, uh, a worldwide flood to wipe out all mankind and land-dwelling creatures except for those on the ark with Noah, and you have major climate change as a result. After the flood, God told Noah, until the end of the world, there will be seed-time harvest, cold heat, summer, winter. Major climate change. Now we've gone from good to bad to worse, and we're carrying on downhill. Uh, God gave Noah a new food rule. He gave Noah permission to kill any animals, birds, and fish, but not to consume their blood. There was now struggle to survive. There was now death. There were now scavengers. There were now carnivores. There were creatures using their good design in a bad way. Um, a record of climate shows this. Erratic climates where creatures have to use their design in order to survive, even if it is not the way that was originally intended for. Natural selection became a real force. The degenerating climate and certainly the, uh, the cylindrical climate that we see today forced struggle to survive um, as loss of vegetation for scavenging and carnivorous habits and so on and so forth. Survival of the fittest on a much bigger scale. And survival of the fittest, by the way, means the extinction of the unfit. Hmm. Disease is common after Noah's flood. Um, continually common and mankind's lifespan drops significantly according to scripture. Struggle continues to increase and you end up with problem after problem after problem. Uh, but make sure you put on God's glasses. Life created as separate kinds. Separate kinds reproduce their own kinds through time. And change, by the way, is the result of pre-designed adaptation or degenerate devolution. None of those, are, or neither of those rather, are any help to evolution in the slightest. But make sure you take off Darwin's glasses, which calls all change evolution, accepts any change as proof of evolution, and then dismisses creation as unthinkable. Make sure you're actually defining what change we're looking at. The world certainly has changed, but it's not this change. It's not bad to better to best to beyond. It's good to bad to worse to where we are today. It's devolution downhill. And you can explain every single one of these bad things as we observe or interpret them today um, as the result of the fall 
as a result of the curse. A little gospel thing at the end and uh, why this is so important. Jesus said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Of course, you can actually flip that on its head if they can listen to Moses, if they do listen to the prophets, if they can be shown that uh, Genesis can be trusted, that God's word fits with what we observe in God's world, then they can be persuaded through one rising from the dead. That one is Jesus Christ. That's why we have this ministry. This is why Donnie and SFD have this whole ministry that we do is to give people the real answers for the hope that is within us, that hope is Jesus Christ. A reminder of the websites, a reminder of the uh, the um, Creation Research store resources, 20% off store-wide if you use the code SFT October all caps. Um, so you can find out more about that there. I'm going to stop sharing now because that's at the end of my presentation and we'll come back for questions and some more discussions as well. Awesome, Joe. Uh, another fantastic presentation. Tons of great feedback in the chat. Lots of great things um, to say about your presentation, Joe. And therefore, I want to recommend, especially any new subscribers, any new supporters, uh, because we did just hit over the 6,000 subscriber mark. Great had stuff. A lot of new, I appreciate that. We've had a lot of new uh, supporters. So please, uh, people are asking where they can find more of Joe. Uh, obviously, in your presentation, Joe, you uh, showed them where they can find your website and YouTube channel, uh, specifically here on Standing for Truth. Uh, make sure you check out the website, standingfortruthministries.com. Under the categories titled The Genesis Flood and Geology and Refuting the Critics, you'll find all of the past presentations and lectures that we've had with Joe and the entire creation research team. Uh, you can also find under the playlist section on the YouTube channel, uh, I made a specific playlist titled uh, the creation research team on standing for truth. So everything is, is there. And uh, Joe, I want to point out that this is such an important topic to cover so thoroughly um, as you have. And especially considering many of the arguments put forth against young earth creation are actually derived from this topic. So I really mm. want to thank you again, Joe. A lot of it is it's important to get that, you know, perspective, because if you if you don't have that perspective, then it doesn't matter, uh, you know, how many arguments you can put forward most of these arguments or most of these uh, critiques or most of these issues stem back to this same problem of you don't have the mind of Christ in you. Uh, you're coming at it from a completely different angle, so you're never actually going to find the answers because, you know, you're coming at it from completely the wrong angle anyway. So, um, right. yeah, that's something important to uh, important to, to, to remember. Amen, brother. Amen. I want to point out that we have so many uh, awesome questions from our awesome audience with a solid mixture of scripture and science-based questions. And therefore, I believe a good place to start, uh, Joe, since as we have pointed out so many times, uh, I know in, in my ministry and in your ministry as well at Creation Research, we've pointed out how the Bible is our final authority. Right. And, and, and the Bible claims to be the history book of the universe. So that's where we start. And uh, so therefore, the question that I have for you, Joe, is we have a lot of old earth and theistic evolutionist critics that say the Bible does not actually teach a young earth. Uh, some of them, 
specifically the theistic evolutionists actually go as far as saying that the Bible teaches evolution. Um, what is the best way to demonstrate then a young earth from the Bible specifically? Okay, so if you want the, the really, really full and detailed thing, I can point out uh, two um, resources and then I'll sort of answer the question. Um, the first one is I had uh, some specific dealings with um, Dennis Alexander, who is, I think, probably the most vocal or well-known theistic evolutionist in the world today, right? And um, I, I've, I've discussed with him, I've spoken with him, I've offered to debate him, and he has refused. Uh, we put together a program, both myself and Dr. Diane Eager, um, a program called Beware of Alexander, um, which of course is the reference from scripture, but it fits quite nice, nicely with his name, sort of discussing some of his arguments because he comes from the background of oh, scripture not only teaches an old earth and evolution, uh, believing that God chose a specific group of uh, Neolithic farmers or cavemen, for want of a better word, to decide to have a relationship with them is what the Bible teaches. He believes he takes the scripture literally when he promotes that idea. So he did a whole set of dealing with that, uh, nice big long detailed uh, list of some of his arguments and so on and so forth. So check that out. The next point that I'm going to bring on, I mean, there's four or five different angles we could take with this and we could spend all night on the one topic and maybe that's a good topic to do in the future. Um, but if you want uh, the detailed sort of thing of what I'm about to say, you can go to see our Christmas presentation from last year. Now, if you get over the Christmas side of thing, because it's nowhere near Christmas yet, and that's still months and months off, <laughs> well, at least I like to think it is anyway, um, you watch a presentation that I did for last Christmas. It's on our YouTube site called um, Chronology of Christmas. And what we did is we looked at the um, uh, how essential it is that we can essentially date the earth from scripture for who jesus christ is now this is the point that we made if you go to the book of ezra right what has ezra got to do with it well he was part of the priesthood he was commissioned with setting the priesthood up in the uh in the the new jerusalem that they were going back to right they were building the walls that was all nehemiah right get them all you know one by one build up a bit of it defend it and so on and so forth and ezra was sent in to establish the priesthood now if you wanted to be a priest it was you had to be a set aside people right the 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 hebrews were set aside right the children of israel themselves were set aside from all other people but if you wanted to be a priest you had to be the most set aside of all the set aside because you had to belong to the tribe of levi Right? And it wasn't just good enough being the tribe of Levi, you had to belong to a specific sect of the tribe of Levi that were descended from Aaron, who was the first high priest, right? So you had, it was, it was a super secluded set apart people. And you had to prove, using Jews are, were absolutely brilliant and still are, at keeping records and documents, right? And their family history. You had to prove who you were descended from in order to actually be able to be uh, in the priesthood, especially if you wanted to be a high priest. Right now in the book of Ezra, it documents uh, these three people who come back and somehow in their uh, time in captivity in Babylonian and then the Medo-Persian Empire, they had essentially lost their grandfather's birth certificate. They were missing a link, a single link between themselves and their father and before the time that they came into captivity. 
right? They were missing a link to prove who they were. And scripture says, even though they knew that their, you know, their timeline, even though they knew that their genealogy said that they had been in the priesthood, because they were missing that one link, because they couldn't prove it because of that one link, scripture says in Ezra that they were cast out of the priesthood as defiled. Now, that's how serious God takes authenticity. That's how serious God takes legitimacy. Right? It is extremely important to God to prove that you are who you say you are. Also bearing in mind that it also says that out of every word of your mouth you will be judged. I brought that up at a uh, at a wedding sermon that I did a few weeks back, and it was probably the most unusual Bible verse to bring out in a wedding sermon, but I was making the point of the vows, right? If two people make vows in front of God, God will hold you accountable to those vows, okay? And so it's extremely important to God, extremely important. You can see this all throughout scripture, proving who you are, the legitimacy in the priesthood, and that is a legal contract for redemption. Now, where am I going with this? Well, who is Jesus? He's our great high priest. Right? Read the book of Hebrews. We haven't got time tonight, but it, it deals with all of that, right? And in order to be our great high priest, he actually needs to be descended from Adam. If he's not descended from Adam, because scripture is clear, one man brought sin, and that was Adam, so all descendants of Adam need being saved. So if the Savior is not a descendant from Adam, then he is legit illegitimate. He is unable to actually perform any saving grace because he is not a relative of the person who he is actually saving. Oh, by the way, if you go through the Levitical law, um, which was the law for the Levites, right, for the group of the priesthood, you find that there is a important, uh, important uh, law there about being a relative of the person that you are trying to redeem. If you're trying to take the punishment for somebody, you have to be related to them. Again, extremely important. Not only does Jesus Christ has to be related to Adam, he has to be provably related to Adam. Now, if you go into scripture and you count up all the genealogies, you can match them up with uh, Matthew and Luke. You can match it up to the stuff which is in uh, Genesis through Chronicles and Kings as well. You can find all of the chronology. You can find all the references. You get to an age of the earth of about 6,000 years. Right Now, if you want to argue that there are gaps in the genealogies, and there are problems in the genealogies, then A, you are throwing the legitimacy of Jesus Christ as a saviour and descendant from Adam into question, because you're arguing that God has not preserved the record proving that he is legitimate, uh, legitimately able to um, redeem human beings, being A, related to them, and also B, being descended from Adam. Right, the two major requirements for actually being a redeemer. So you're throwing Christ's legitimacy as saviour into question. What you're also doing is, well, if you really want to argue there are big gaps in the genealogies, you could argue that there are gaps and only the important ones were saved and so on and so forth. All these kind of arguments that are being used. But even if you want to do that, you end up getting to an age of the earth no more than 10,000 years. That's why I used that 10,000 year figure earlier, right? right? Now, if you want to get to the 10,000 years, you're still miles off of a million years. Uh, and the current thinking around evolution is that the Earth is around four to four and a half billion years old. The universe is somewhere between 14 and 15 billion years old, right? It's way, way, way off anything that you could try and squeeze in scripture. So theistic evolutionists 
have to disregard not only do they throw the legitimacy of christ into question but i have found over and over and over again a number of theistic evolutionists i'm happy to stand up and say you are not actually a christian you are simply a pagan worshiper worshiping a god who simply and um, ultimately evolution is your god right all the philosophy behind evolution because what you find again and again and this isn't you know um I'm, uh, you know this isn't a uh, uh, across the across the ballpark but what you find surprisingly often with a lot of theistic evolutionists is that once you deny the special creation as recorded in scripture it's you're only one step away from denying things like the deity of christ the virgin birth things like these right and a number of theistic evolutions very influential theistic evolutionists that i've dealt with openly deny things like the deity of christ well i'm sorry if christ isn't god um then you're worshiping a different god to who i'm worshiping right so you've got a whole uh, a whole system of problems like this. Also, you can uh, find how did um, Christ himself and also apostles like the Apostle Paul treat Genesis? And you find it was with complete legitimacy and literalism. Uh, Jesus himself talking about divorce. And again, I brought this up in the wedding sermon that I did. I brought divorce up in a wedding ceremony. Again, not the most common of things to do. Um, but it made the point that when Jesus was being questioned on the issue of divorce, what did he do? He took them back. He took the law that he was using back to Genesis, right? from the beginning god made them male and female not several million years after the beginning but from the beginning they've been male and female therefore yes moses allowed divorce because you were horrible rotten sinners but ultimately it's god's plan that a man and a woman are together for life right that's the whole premise of marriage um again the apostle paul you can find very clearly stated i mean his his work in romans is great because his logic is extremely tight a lot of people don't like preaching from romans because it's so hard to dodge around it right by one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men therefore by one righteous act uh, redemption has come from christ the logic is tight one sinful man's life brought death that's adam therefore it takes one sinless man's death to bring life christ right now as soon as you start arguing evolution into genesis you throw the entire argument of of, of paul's um salvation argument uh, out of the window you're throwing christ's legitimacy as savior into question and uh, if you want to find more on that argument watch the chronology um Chris, the chronology of christmas um video and also go into uh, the ask site it's creationresearch.net click on the q a or it's askjohnmackay.com to go straight to there and just look put in like doctrine or something like that there's a there's a really detailed article that we put up a few a little while back which is do any major biblical doctrines rely on the six days of creation or is it just an irrelevant interesting but irrelevant side issue um and that's probably our most comprehensive one that we've done and it's uh it's, it's very very detailed there well, that was a very uh, fantastic and thorough answer, Joe. I always appreciate that. What are your thoughts then to kind of branch off that a little bit? Um, I've heard over and over again, old earth creationists specifically, that'll say, okay, you know, we reject this idea of theistic evolution. Mm -hmm. But when Jesus says from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female, they will say, well, this is just the beginning of, of either the creation of man or mm -hmm. when uh, God instituted marriage and sure, therefore yeah. you know time can go back millions to billions of years after uh -huh. that um, what are your thoughts on that 
Okay, what you have is, uh, if you're not a theistic evolutionist and you still want to believe in the concept of millions of years in evolution, you are usually either a uh, ruin reconstructionist, uh, which is basically God had to try several times to get his creation right and he kept destroying it and recreating it and therefore left us with an earth that had the appearance, appearance of uh, vast ages. Or you are, uh, the other popular one is the gap theory. Right, where you end up with a major gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. And in that time frame, you have millions of years. Now, that's all well and good until you have to start asking the question of, well, where did all the fossils come from? Did that happen in this time? And then you have to start inventing things like Lucifer's flood, where God created the angels and then uh, Lucifer rebelled and became Satan and got cast down to earth and corrupted all of the uh, animals, including the sort of subhuman beings that God had created, uh, which we refer to today as Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon man and so on and so forth. And so God had to destroy the world in Lucifer's flood and bury it all up and cover it up and then start again. Right Now, the biggest problem with all of this is that none of it is found in scripture anyway. Right. What you're essentially doing is you're starting with science as your authority and you're trying to shove it into scripture. And what you end up doing is making excuses like, oh, God didn't really mean what he said he meant when he said this. Uh, like I created, you know, since the beginning, they created male and female um, uh, or the fact that when God finished his creation, he said it was very good. Right? Because if the, either the gap theory or the ruin reconstruction theory is true, what you're essentially saying is that at the end of the last creation, right, when God created human beings and therefore marriage, he called it all very good. He looked over everything that he had created and he said it was very good. So what you're essentially saying is God is call, calling vast amounts of death and disease because the fossil record is full of disease. You know it's full of death because they're all dead, right? That's the first thing you know about a fossil. So what you're saying is God is calling everything that he has made including death disease and uh, uh, all sorts of nasty things very good okay when scripture says as it was in the beginning so it shall be without end are you saying that we're going to be trapped in eternal torment with death and disease and all sorts of stuff in the new heavens and the new earth um, I haven't come across a Christian who'd agree with that in the slightest. But you do realize if you want to argue that that's what God used to create the first time round, you're absolutely no guarantee that that's not what he's going to use in the second time round. Uh, especially, as he said, it's going to be very good. Now, the other point that we like to make is the whole issue of death. Um, God actually calls death the last enemy several times in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, in Revelation in particular, he calls death an enemy. Now, the whole process of evolution requires death, or this whole sort of idea of evolution, as we think macroevolution over millions of years, requires death. It requires survival of the fittest, which means the extinction of the unfit. If you don't have that in place, you don't get evolution. So it requires death in order to actually function. And so why would God use uh, something which he ends up calling an enemy to bring around the world in the first place. What you're actually doing is claiming that God is either A, inconsistent at best, or B, a liar at worst. Now, if he's either of those things, he's not worthy of any worship in the slightest, so you might as well give up now. Right? The whole of scripture, the whole of Christianity, uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, it'll probably say something like, based on the life and death of Jesus Christ. And that's not actually that bad of a definition, because Paul himself said, if Christ did not really come, if Christ did not really die, and if Christ did not really rise again, then you are still in your sins, your faith is futile, you might as well give up now. 
right? Christianity is a fact-based faith. If it's not based on fact, you may as well give up now because you've got no hope in the slightest. So if God didn't really create like he said he did, if God didn't really uh, you know, judge like he said he did, if he didn't really promise like he said he did, if he didn't really come and didn't really die like he said he did, um, we have absolutely no guarantee of a new heavens and a new earth. We quite frankly might as well give up now. Now, that's the kind of logical reasoning you come to when you ex start to reject any single part of scripture. And personal experience, having traveled a lot and spoken with a lot of people and dealt with a lot of people, most people who try and fit millions of years in evolution and so on and so forth in the Bible, whether they're a theistic evolutionist, whether they're ruin reconstruction, gap theorist, whatever, um, all of them hold science at a far higher uh, uh, authority than scripture. Um, so quite frankly, if you're going to do that, what's the point in carrying on with your religion anyway? You might as well turn straight to your new religion, which is science. Uh, you need to hold scripture as the authority uh, because it is a fact-based faith. If you, you know, I mean, the whole, the whole premise is, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he didn't say, this is the way, that's the way, follow these ideas and you might find the way. He said, I'm the way. Uh, if we're not following a physical fact, i.e. Jesus Christ, we're lost anyway. So um, you need to start taking God's word seriously. That's another great response, uh, Joe. And to me, when I hear that argument, they're just adding to Scripture, twisting Scripture, because yeah. it doesn't say, you know, the beginning of the creation of man. It's saying the beginning of creation. Yeah, from the beginning, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and to me, he's he's giving us, uh, you know, Jesus, he's giving us a, le a lesson on the importance of marriage by referring back to the creation week, specifically day six of the creation week. And, and one last thing I'd like to add is if these days are 24 hour days, then day six can still be considered the beginning. But if you mm -hmm. want to make each day millions to billions of years old, well, then that doesn't make any sense because it's no longer the beginning because there's billions of years prior to exactly, yeah. um, day six. So I, I don't find that to be, a very good response, and that's the best I've seen. So I appreciate that, uh, Joe. So let's get uh, right to this next question, and I'm kind of looking at them because we've got a ton of questions. Um, oh. I've just lost you a little bit there, Donnie. I'm not sure if it's me or if it's you, um, but you just cut out there for a second. Um. I've completely lost you, I'm afraid. I think my Wi-Fi is still working. I don't quite know what's going on, folks. I don't know if you can still hear me or anything. Um, oh. But I've completely lost... Uh, Donnie, are you back? Yes. Hey. How does it look? How does it look? It looks fine. <laughs> it looks good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, appreciate you, I wasn't sure whether it was me or me or you, because sometimes no. my wife cuts out as well. But yeah, that's good. I, I could hear the kids playing upstairs. They might have uh, uh, bumped oh, into the, the modem yeah. or something. Yeah, 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 that yeah. doesn't usually happen. So I appreciate that. I had to tell you, Donnie, you've gone again. <laughs> Technology, folks. Great fun. Tell you what, while Donnie's uh, trying to 
sort this out and come back in perhaps um i've got so you can see some of the questions here um if i just grab one and do one like that that's probably the easiest way and that gives donnie a chance to sort out his uh internet or whatever i can see here in the uh private chat uh, donnie's put up some of the um questions question for joe uh about resin pitch covering the axe head is that the substance noah would have used to seal the arc that's an interesting question and it's certainly a possibility so you can see my axe like this you see the sort of shiny pitch around here it is pitch uh it's made out of um uh pine pitch predominantly so pine sap uh which of course when you heat it up it goes gloopy it's got a bit of beeswax in there and it's also got some charcoal in there as well so it's ex extremely strong it's extremely tight you know i can't i can barely scratch it with my finger um it seals the axe head in really really nicely now if you look up scripture and you look up the hebrew word for pitch which is used in um uh, in Genesis, you'll find that it's actually kofa, and it can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be used to describe something like uh, a bitumen, like a black tarry substance, or it can be used as uh, a sort of a... Um, uh, a, a, a verb in a sense to, to sort of to cover to indicate that it's being something is being covered i suspect it's a mixture of the two in this case but either way it works um it, i think something like plant-based pitch or bitumen is probably the most likeliest uh, it's certainly very watertight it's certainly something that is used and has been used down throughout history um i shy away from the idea of it being a oil-based pitch uh, because most oil is fossil fuel hence the name fossil fuels you know it's a it's a, a fossil based um thing from decaying plants and or sea creature remains I, of course, believe most of that happened during Noah's flood. But either way, uh, you need to need to have a mechanism for it to produce this kind of oil in between the fall of mankind and the flood. Because, of course, there was no death before mankind. We've dealt with that tonight. Right. Um, so I would I would I suspect, although I probably think we'll never know, I suspect it will be some kind of waterproof pitch substance predominantly sourced from plants uh one thing we know for sure is that pine things were pine plants pine trees were extremely abundant in the pre-flood uh, world because we find an incredible amount of their um fossils in fact most coal is actually pine trees so there's certainly no lack of pine trees around to get all this stuff off of um is uh, is donny back yet yes yes hey you're back excellent <laughs> i right. appreciate your patience Man, I that's having, fine. um I, I hope it's good now. Um, I was having issues th this morning and, and then it's been good for the first hour and a half. So mm -hmm. I plugged in my Ethernet cable and it should be good. I don't usually have issues, but, um, you know, we'll keep our, our fingers crossed. I am sure. coming in good, though. No, no lagginess anymore. No. Um, Great stuff. OK. OK. So that being said, let's get right to this next question. Then I appreciate everybody's patient patience. I appreciate your patience as well, Joe. Uh, so this next question um, and as I was pointing out before, uh, I lost connection. Uh, this is an argument that's brought up almost every time now in a debate on evolution. And the question is, Joe, are you familiar with the lizards that evolutionists have pointed to as having evolved a completely new gut structure mm -hmm. and therefore being evidence for large scale evolution? I think uh, they're referred to as the Italian wall lizards, perhaps. Um, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, Italian wall. We have um, wall lizards in the UK as well, um, uh, down on the Isle of Wight. Actually, I spend quite a lot of time time observing them. They're they're wonderful little creatures. Um, I'm not 
overly familiar with the exact study and I, I need to do this is one of the things that I was um, so it's been very very busy over the last few weeks so one of the things I wanted to do was pull together not just about the lizards and the embryos and stuff like that but also these war lizards and everything else and pull it all together and do a study I think perhaps it might be a good one to do um, maybe a, a, a shorter standing for truth program on when i've done a bit more research but essentially what you'll find in most of these things is they're being used for evidence of large-scale evolution or macroevolution or whatever you want to call it when the reality is there has been no new information added to the genome all you're simply doing is the same kind of program that's going on with say for instance darwin's finches which are the famous ones where you have pre-existing information which is being selected for a specific purpose and uh, we dealt with it briefly on one of our creation conversations with these war lizards and one of the things that we'd said is if you put them into a new environment they will adapt to a new environment uh, but if you put them back into the original environment which they're in they will often go back to that because they're still carrying the genes to be in the original form that they were in they've just had to adapt to a different environment what caused the adaptation in the environment well it depends on the creature and it depends on what the environment is darwin's finches are the classic example because the islands which have big thick nuts you'll find the birds with big thick beach beakers uh, beaks um the islands which have thin tiny seeds you'll find the little pecking beaks right so you'll find that depending on the environment which you're in the pre-existing information is there uh, all it needs is natural selection to fine-tune it now you're not adding any new information you're just fine-tuning the information that's already there now that's adaptation and ultimately adaptation will lead to at some point devolution uh to the point where you have lost it go back to the original now this happens over generations of breeding this happens as the genome becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and there's no fresh information added from other individuals so if you have an isolated case cheetahs are a great example of this right they're a big cat but they can't breed with other big cats even though most big cats can breed with each other because they're so far down the devolution adaptation line that they simply have never been given any additional information into their genome from other creatures therefore they're just essentially on the way to extinction soundly now that key point right because adaptation will lead to devolution devolution leads to extinction now continue to isolate these war lizards what will happen over a number of generations is the adaptation which they have will lead to devolution therefore they can't go back to their original gut system and eventually they will become so select they will end up going extinct now none of that process is any help to evolution in the slightest because if you want to turn an amoeba into a human being you need to add an enormously incredible volume of information and you simply that's simply something that has not been observed and simply something that we have no even mechanism to actually do that's a great response uh joe I, and, and i always point out that these um forward-thinking mechanisms that we find in the genome based on this pre-existing capacity for for these types of important adaptive episodes mm -hmm. uh, simply via environment that points us back to yeah. the forward thinker Right? Yes, so it's already yeah. built in, into the system. But you remember what I was uh, pointing out and showing earlier, you know, different environments produce um, different kinds of 
uh, adaptations. And again, from a biblical perspective, this happens as you get more erratic climates after the uh, after the flood, where you get first major climate change, right? But be wary of Darwin's mistake, which is to observe change, call all change evolution, say given enough time, small changes can make big changes, and therefore dismiss special creation as unthinkable, right? There's a massive leap in there, which is not only uh, you know, non-provable, it's completely unscientific to actually make. That's a great point. That's a great point. And I think with these Italian wall lizards too, I've, I've read in the past that it's just a prime example of what's called phenotypic plasticity, where as you pointed out, the ability is already built in because of the environment, it's been manifested. You take them out of the environment and it, it'll just go uh, back to kind of the way it was before. So yeah. great response, Joe. I'm just going to make a note of these because I think it'd be good to do a program, whether it's on creation conversations or whether it's with you guys. I think it'd be good to do a program where we look a little bit deeper, get Diane on because she can do the genetics a little bit, uh, a little bit better. But also we'll do some specific research into the wall lizards um, and also into that uh, is obviously their gut system, but also into that um, embryonic stuff that we were also discussing a little while back. I appreciate that, Joe. So here's the next question. Um, and, and we've specifically had a herpetologist, evolutionary herpetologist on the channel before. Uh, mm -hmm. He's engaged with us on some formal debates. And he's mm -hmm. actually pointed to fossil snakes that he has said uh, demonstrate a transition from snakes with legs to mm -hmm. snakes with no legs. And I believe it was Najash. I'm not sure if you're yes, familiar with Najash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what, Taken straight what, out of the Bible, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so, so it's taken straight out of the the, the, the word that the Bible uses for scripture is no Josh. So um, it's uh, it's it's taken straight out of scripture. No 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 doubt about it. And they openly admit that that's where it was taken from, which is really cool. I think anyway. Um, yeah, snakes with legs. There's no doubt about it. Snakes used to have legs. In fact, you could almost argue that snakes still have legs, or certain snakes anyway. Uh, if you go to the big snakes like the pythons, the reticulated pythons, so on and so forth. What you will find is underneath, uh, you can find these little spurs. Now, these are little tiny things that stick out to the bottom of the snake's back um, sort of hindquarters. Uh, but you will find that they are actually attached to little bones and little leg bones, which are attached to a small pelvis. Right? Now, they're not useful for much else than trying to grab hold of the female while they're mating, but you can match these up to you know things in the fossil record where they certainly had legs. Right Now, you used to have legs, now you don't. In other words, you've lost information. Uh, you haven't gained any new information. You've had to adapt to the fact that you haven't got legs anymore, so you've simply lost the ability to have legs. Uh, and one of the things that's really interesting, not only do we find in genetics that everything is connected, right? Nothing is isolated on its own. Everything is connected. But the uh, key for getting, uh, if you mutate to lose your legs, you'll also get smaller when it comes to snakes. This is real research. You can go find it out, right? So the more you lose your legs, the smaller you'll get. Um, and the uh, more you'll sort of uh, shrink in one way or shrink in a different way or change in a different way as well, because everything genetic-wise is all interconnected. And um, when you're dealing with things like DNA, not only are you, you know, it's not just the, the helix, you also fold it in on each other and the folds fit in somewhere. It, it's unbelievably complex, right? So everything's all interconnected. <clears throat> 
But one thing we know for sure is that snake leg loss is certainly not evolution as in it's getting better. It's devolving. They used to have legs. Now they don't. They've lost the ability to have legs. So now they don't. And it's the result of a mutation, which you can still find the elements of that mutation inside uh, snakes, especially the bigger pythons today. So you've got no real evidence for evolution. It's simply going downhill. That's a great uh, answer, Joe. And I, I like how you pointed to it uh, in the previous answer as well, that the general rule that we find is degeneration. Hmm. So these adaptive episodes we see, that's good. It points us back to the forward thinker, but they're never going to counterbalance the damage no. that has been done by you know degeneration, mutation accumulation. So, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, let's get right to this next question then. And uh, we kind of talked about this earlier before we went live, but it is a question that is brought up uh, very often lately. And it's because a specific evolutionary biologist by the name of Dr. Dan Stern Cardinal, he has uh, claimed that populations of lizards are going from egg laying to live birth. And mm -hmm. he's saying this is evidence essentially for large scale macro evolution. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts? What's the best way to respond? Okay, very briefly, because I think that um, what I'll do is we'll 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 add that onto the um, wall lizard program or whatever we do, and I'll do some full research because I don't know the specifics. I have to be honest. Um, however, one thing that I do know is that uh, when it comes to snake uh, snakes and lizards and things like that and they're embryonic they always have a sort of small placenta a sort of a, a, a sub pseudo placenta whatever you want to call it in there already it's pretty much in a sense unused most of the time however it can be used in some cases and i suspect that's what's happening in this case um it's something is forcing it to actually use a backup system now you find this with a lot of reptiles they will have a backup system in some way we briefly kind of touched that with uh the venom because the venom is in a sense the backup system it's a good design which can be adapted into something far worse especially if you isolate it in an environment where it has to rely upon that venom right um and uh, there's been a number of cases where you've had reptiles in particular snakes and large lizards, uh, females which have been completely isolated from any male all of their lives and they've still been able to give birth because they essentially clone themselves. Right? Now, is that an ideal situation? No, it's not. Right? You're a clone. You're genetically inferior, but it's a last chance of survival. Now, when you start using these embryonic cells, uh, sorry, these the, the, these new um, placental, placenta uh, and developing em embryos inside and so on and so forth, um, a lot of this is the result of stress on the environment. Now, I need to look up the specific thing um, because I suspect you will find similar to the wall lizards, it is a pre-existing uh, genetic um, information that's there, it has the information there, it's just never needed to manifest it before. Right? Or certainly if it has had to manifest it before, we've never observed it right so we need to do a little bit more dig deeper digging into that but i suspect that's the kind of thing that we're looking at here um you'll find mo that's the case most of the time with these things i appreciate that response joe um so here's the next question that comes in from doki doki sft fan club i appreciate the question doki uh, doki asks joe if you receive the depressing letter from darwin about why is there death suffering and parasites what would you reply to them? Why is there death, suffering, and parasites? Um, okay, well, start with uh, 
death death is the easy one that's our fault you can't blame it on god scripture is abundantly clear that death is not a biological necessity but it is now a fact of life right we dealt with that earlier what dawkins tends to do is not so much um say or why is there death and suffering so much uh because of course he believes that death and suffering is a pivotal point of his theory right evolution the one that often comes from people like dawkins and people like attenborough uh, and people like stephen fry is why would a god create these specific parasites and nasty bugs and things that can only manifest inside of an eye and so on and so forth right now if you use our special coupon code sft october and uh, use it to get uh, Why Would a Good God Make Bad Bugs DVD program, you'll know the answer to this, because it deals with a lot of things like malaria, AIDS, SARS virus, these little parasites that live in the eye, and so on and so forth. One thing that you'll find in almost every single case is that it is the result of being, again, forced into an environment where it's not, it's had to adapt or it's had to change, right? Now, <clears throat> if you go back to what we briefly mentioned earlier about clean and unclean animals, right? Clean animals eat predominantly plants, unclean animals eat predominantly meat, right? There, and especially the scavengers. Now, once you start scavenging, you're more chance of picking up parasites. And uh, when you then, if humans then consume that animal that has been eating the parasites, you're more in chance of getting the parasites passed on to you themselves. Now, in, to use a specific example, this example that David Attenborough used, which was about this little worm, which he said could only survive by completing its life cycle inside the eye of a child. Well, that's not technically true because you'll find that this is actually a worm which originates in other originally from the soil, then into other animals, and it is only found in places where poverty is extreme and people are forced to go rummaging through bins and or dead carcasses in order to get their nourishment. Now, that's not an ideal world, nor is that a very good world. And as a result, you're picking up things like parasites, which can complete their life cycle within your eye, turn you blind, and can also spread out to other people that you're in contact with. So what you'll find is most of these things, I mean, I had to do a program last year on the coronavirus and uh, the church was shocked when i stood up and said hey god created the coronavirus and they thought of course i was about to go into some sort of political thing about god judging the nations which i'm not that you know certainly possible right um but the point was scripture clearly teaches that everything was made not only by christ but also for christ and scripture also teaches that everything was originally very good so it goes back to this original good purpose what you will find with almost every single in fact if you if you can't find it, it's because we don't fully understand how it works here or what its purposes is but with every single case and scenario you'll find that these creatures like parasites bugs bacteria so on and so forth they would have all started out as an originally good thing a good creation which are now being used in a bad way and you'll find that the reason why they start affecting us in a bad way is because of our sin not just because of course the original sin uh, that adam did but the fact that we do not follow god's rules we do not follow god's laws i mean if we all followed god's laws on sexuality aids and hiv would never have been a thing 
right um that's not to say so much that it's uh you know god's judgment on us which it, again it may, may very well be but it's just a direct consequence of our sin uh if we had been sticking to the original uh perfectly good vegetarian diet when the plants were absolutely perfect and our body and immune system was able to cope with it then we would have been in perfect condition however as we go downhill the world goes downhill and plants go downhill and we find ourselves in a situation where we are it's a, necess a necessity to eat meat right because there are many cultures all over the world where it's a necessity to eat meat i mean i went to uh, iceland right for my honeymoon slash to make a documentary and uh, if it wasn't for the people shifting in large quantities of fresh food from europe and africa and so on and so forth and shipping it in your entire dependency would be on meat uh, whether it be fish or stuff that you're cultivating. So there are cultures who require meat because of the climate uh, that it's in that goes straight back to good God, bad things, the whole presentation we did earlier, right? And you'll find that because we are no longer in a perfect world and because we are in a sin-filled world where our own decisions make uh, have, have consequences, you'll find that that is the origin of all of these so-called bad things. Now, uh, of course, if you're Dawkins, you believe that everything has evolved in order to try and survive. So really, it's a nasty, horrible, vicious world that you're uh, talking about, as opposed to what the evidence actually points to. Another great answer, Joe. I appreciate the question, Doki. I appreciate the answer, Joe. This next one comes in from Sam Jenkins. <clears throat> hey, you know, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> So good old Sam's got a good old question here. He says, uh, if you could pick one thing to show an atheist, the complete lack of evidence for macro evolution, what uh -huh. would it be and why? Okay, the complete lack of evidence for macro evolution. Um, the, the biggest thing that I would say still stands is the uh, definition of design. All right now remember we talked about design earlier i talked about these axe heads um what is it how do we know it's designed it's designed because it contains properties that do not come from the material it's made of the material is stone stone by itself does not do this it has properties that do not come from the material naturally therefore this has been designed and it's been meticulously designed by somebody actually carefully flaking away stuff to turn it into a shape right rolling around for millions of years will never produce this uh, this axe head is a design iron and bog iron does not form a nice sharp blade and wonderful beautiful decoration all over it by itself this axe head has properties that do not come from the material that it's made of therefore it is a design this large axe, which was made for me just a week ago or so, um, wood and stone and pitch and all this doesn't come together by itself. This axe contains properties that do not come from its constituent materials. Therefore, it's a design. All right. So we all know we can all easily recognize design straight away. Uh, defining it's a bit trickier, but now you've got the definition. So let's start easy and build up. Right. What is a car? A car is a 100% moving object made out of 100% non-moving parts. Right? It's a design because the components uh, do not produce the properties by themselves. The car has properties that do not come from the material that it's made from. Therefore, the car is designed. Nobody <clears throat> questions that. Nobody needs to go through the step-by-step -step process of determining whether it's a design or not because we're all very good at recognizing design. 
What is a plane? <clears throat> a plane is a 100% flying object made out of 100% non-flying parts. Right? Its constituent parts have, do not have the properties which the plane has, therefore it is a design. Take it another step forward, what's a computer code? I'm more using a computer code this evening, you're all using a computer code probably to watch this. Um, okay, what is a computer code? It's ones and noughts. Now, by themselves, they do not contain any inherent information. They don't even mean one or nothing unless you say that they mean one or nothing, right? Because many cultures had different sort of scribbles for one or nothing, right? But the inventor of the computer code decided that one and naught would mean a certain thing. It's a switch to turn on and off. And when you apply them in the right order and you tell them to mean something, they actually mean something. Right, and then you go away and become a billionaire and produce Microsoft and so on and so forth. Right? Um, okay, a computer code is a 100% coding object made out of 100% non-coding parts. Right? It's meaning code made out of meaning-free components. It's not until you add intelligence to them that they actually mean something. Right? And so a design will always tell you that something who is greater than it, somebody who is not part of it, and somebody who existed before it actually made the constituent parts do what they do not do naturally, and hence you've got a design, right? a computer code. Okay, take it one step forward. What is DNA? DNA is made out of phosphates, carbon, sugars, so on and so forth, right? nitrogens. Um, probably you consume most of that stuff for your breakfast this morning. Right. Each of those individual components do not contain the same properties as DNA by themselves. DNA has properties that do not come from the materials that it's made of. Therefore, it is a design. And what does a design always prove? A design always proves that somebody who is not part of it, somebody who is far greater than it, somebody who existed before it actually made the individual components do what they do not do by themselves. Right. Def uh, DNA contains every single hallmark of design. It contains every single property required for it to be called a design. Now, if you are dealing with a design, then you need a designer. If you're dealing with a creation, then you need a creator. Now, if you have a creation who is made by a creator, you will give the creator his due. That's why if you go have a look at your van outside and it says Ford on it, it bears the hallmark of the person who invented it, right? Or at least invented and started the company, right? And started the Model T and so on and so forth, right? It's why you'll find that these patents and stuff are stamped with the name of the inventor because you are required by law to give the creator his due. Now, if DNA is a creation and it has a design, therefore it requires a designer, it requires a creator, make sure you give the creator his due. And that creator is clearly taught in scripture to be Jesus Christ. Amen. Fantastic answer. That uh, that answer deserves to be uh, a clip of its own. Uh, Joe, I really appreciate that. Um, what we're going to start doing here is winding down with these last couple questions. Time is always so, so, flies by. Uh, but it's, it's, it's about, it, it's getting on for one thirty in the morning over here. So um. <laughs> that being said, we're going to just this last question. And um, to anybody in the audience, I apologize if we didn't get to your question, but as you can tell, we would be here all day. So I do want to thank everybody. For... I'll just say one one thing that we, because what we try and do with creation conversations yeah. um, is we try and do uh, questions. And we, if it's a good question, we may do an entire special program about it, right? So if anybody has written a question that we haven't got to here tonight, because um, what normally happens is Donnie or George, who isn't here, obviously here, 
will sometimes you know pile it up and send it to me and the next time i'm on we'll deal with them but you can also go over to our creation conversations right especially the ones uh we usually have a, a stream scheduled in advance so you can go there stick your questions in and we'll try and get to them over the next couple of weeks with creation conversations as well so that's if you really want to get a, a question answered Awesome. I appreciate that. I highly recommend your creation conversations uh, series. So as we said earlier, if you're not yet subscribed, please go uh, subscribe and also check out the podcast. So I just wanted to double check, Joe, when I lost connection, is this a question? Am I losing connection right now? Um, A very little bit, but I can, I think I can still hear you. Okay, good. Because I do know what the issue is, and it, it'll be good that we just wrap it up here because I'll have yeah, to pick sure. it up after. So, uh, is this a question you um, you answered? It's from Sandy C, and he says that rice and pitch covering the axe yeah. head is that the substance Noah would have used to seal the ark? Yeah, that's what that's what I covered when you were when okay. you were when you were when you were when you were chucked out. So, is there any other sort of uh, shortish question that we can do before we wrap up, or uh, shall we call it a night? You know what? I, I say let's call it a night. We got to yeah, sounds good. Uh, the main questions. Joe, I really appreciate your time as always. No, it's been uh, wonderful. <laughs> I appreciate really it. Wonderful. Thank you to the audience as well. God bless you guys. Thanks for the awesome questions. Uh, Joe, any final words, final thoughts before we shut it down? Uh, just make sure that you uh, keep sticking to God's word as your authority. Uh, make sure you stand firm on God's word. And uh, remember that point that we made over and over again. There are many, many different ideas, theories, opinions, hypotheses that all contradict scripture. But the facts never actually do. Amen, brother. Well said. Another great presentation. God, God bless. bless everybody. We'll catch That's you later. Video.